Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 18, Russia's Last Troubadour, The Tale of Kirsha Danilov. From the fair city of glorious Rostov, like two bright falcons flying, rode forth two mighty heroes, by name young Aloshenka Popovich and young Ekim Ivanovich. The heroes are riding shoulder to shoulder, stirrup to heroic stirrup. They are riding and wandering over the open plain. They have met nothing in the open plain. They have seen no birds flying overhead. They have seen no wild beasts running. The only thing they have come upon in the open plain is three broad roads. Such were some of the verses greeting the reader who, in 1804, chanced upon a most remarkable new book. Hiding under the unassuming title of Ancient Russian Verses was a veritable treasure trove of fantastical fairy tales, bawdy tavern strains riddled with double entendre, and dead serious historical and semi-historical legends detailing the lives victories and tragedies of great rulers. Here one could peruse the tale of the rich Novgorod merchant Sadko, stuck in a battle between the undersea king and Saint Nicholas over the fate of the sea and his own soul. Laugh at the ribald mockery piled onto the clergy for their sexual depravity. Sit aghast at the vengeance and wrath of even the terrible be it directed at the city of Kazan or members of his own family, and visit the lost underwater city of Kitiej. This collection introduced many of these tales to the literate public for the first time, and in other cases provided the first full-length versions of tales published in earlier decades. Even better, the book provided musical notation, allowing particularly enthusiastic browsers to pick up their instruments and play along. Of course, even the most elevated reader probably had a passing knowledge of at least snippets of these songs. These were the couplets that labouring peasants chanted as they slashed at rye fields with scythes. These were the hushed nursery rhymes hummed by nannies. These were the epithets bawled by coachmen rattling through the night and the snow. In terms of their language, their metre and their content, it seemed as though they stretched and touched through the centuries to the eyes and ears of the modern reader. And in this single volume, these priceless treasures of the Russian people were safely stored, locked in place by printer's ink. No wonder then that this 1804 book triggered an avalanche of interest in both Russian and Ukrainian folklore that has never really abated. Even less surprising is the fact that a second edition was published in 1818, now presenting for eager consumption 71 stories, although nine had to be censored for lewd indecency. Mysterious, though, was the name attached to this second edition. 
for the title page now proclaimed Ancient Russian Verses compiled by Kirsha Danilov. Who was this unknown bard, this talented minstrel, who switched so easily between historical story, fairy tale, satire and romance? The riddle was to take nearly two centuries to truly unfold. For a start, the manuscript on which both the 1804 and 1818 versions were based was almost immediately lost, only to be recovered at the end of the 19th century. This dog-eared copy, worked on by five or six scribes, provided endless fodder for scholars squabbling over semantics, but offered little in the way of further information on the compiler. By the mid-20th century, some Soviet and Western academics had come to the same conclusion that many proclaim about Homer, the ancient Greek lyricist to whom the Iliad and the Odyssey are traditionally ascribed. Kirsha Danilov never in fact existed, but was instead a name slapped on the collection to give it greater veracity. There was only one known mention of the collection prior to its publication. In a 1768 letter, the Urals factory magnate and millionaire eccentric Prokopi Demidov sent his correspondent, the German historian and Siberia specialist Gerhard Müller, a copy of a song allegedly sang by Siberians. The song coincides exactly with one of those which appeared some 40 years later in Kirsha Danilov's Codex. This fragment combined with some references to Siberian dialectical words in the collection itself, gave a possible point of origin and a tentative date of composition. The collection probably came from the Urals or Siberia and was written no later than 1768. Not much to go on. Thanks to the meticulous archival work of two Soviet specialists, A. Goyev and E. Shakinka, more meat was put on these extremely meagre bones in the 1960s. Following the fact that Prokopi Demidov seemed to know the collection well enough to dispatch a song to an interested academic, these scholars started to research the documents connected to the Demidov family's enormous Euro factory holdings in the decades preceding the 1760s. The investigation bore some incredible fruit revealing at least one correlation between a historical figure and a character in the Kirsha Danilov collection. Most amazing was a letter found between Akinfi Demidov, Prokopi's father, and a manager at the Nizhny Tagil iron plant, today some four hours drive north of the Ural capital of Yekaterinburg. Here, Akinfi demands the dispatch of one Kirsha Danilov, a musician, to a caravan bearing iron to European Russia. Kirsha, Akifini requires, was to bring his instruments, a Tana boy, a balalaika with eight brass strings. After centuries of anonymity, Kirsha Danilov, his home and even his musical instrument had been found. In 2015, the Ekaterinburg historian Viktor Biden took the final steps using an exquisite combination of anthropology, historical scholarship, etymology, and logical deduction to unravel the confusing welter of names, nicknames, 
surnames and patronymics routinely used by the Urals factories when listing or referring to their workers. He thus identifies not only a relatively comprehensive biography for Denilov, but also more precise dates for the creation of the verse collection, from the end of 1761 to the first months of 1762. 200 years of historical detective work have, for the moment at least, reached a strong stopping point. Before digging deeper into Kirsch's biography, however, we should turn to the tradition to which he most definitively belonged, the millennium-old tradition of the Russian Skamarok. Since even the origins of this word, Skamarok, are heavily disputed, there is no easy translation into English. Minstrel, troubadour, bard, jester, fool, buffoon, clown, animal tamer, magician and puppeteer each cover but one aspect of all the skills a fully-fledged Skamarok was supposed to possess. Sometimes wandering players belting out tunes for scraps of change on their emblematic gusli, an ancient Slavic instrument not dissimilar to a lyre. Others lived settled existences as part-time farmers, shopkeepers or soldiers while keeping their other trademark, tamed bears. The Skomoroki were an accepted, although sometimes denounced, factor in Russian life for at least 700 years. They are mentioned in some of the oldest texts in Russian, Ukrainian and Belarusian literature. For instance, they have the honour of being directly condemned in the 1068 Primary Chronicle as vile pagans. Indeed, the historian Russell Zaguta proposes that prior to the conversion of the ancient state of Rus to Orthodox Christianity, the Skarmaraki may have been something like the pagan equivalent of rural priests, leading ceremonies through music and charms. With the conversion to Christianity, they were subsequently forced, albeit slowly, to adopt the role of entertainers in order to grasp at a modicum of social and legal acceptability, incorporating both folk tales and courtly epics into their repertoires. Elements of their previous role persisted nonetheless. Skomoroki were habitually employed during weddings, not only to entertain during the celebrations, but also to magically protect the married couple from dark forces wishing them harm. Given their prominence during marriages, Indeed, it was not unusual for Skomoroki to lead wedding processions. It is little wonder that the Orthodox Church long maintained its hostility, denouncing them as worldly distractions at best, heretical and demonic influences at worst. As the travails of the centuries assaulted the lands of the Eastern Slavs, so the Skomoroki moved and adapted with the Mongol assault on the lands of the Rus in the 13th century, the Skomoroki moved to the north, the relatively peaceful merchant republics of Novgorod and Peskov, where clients rich from the fruits of international trade could pay handsomely for a tune or two. Later, as these mercantile cities entered into decline, the bards migrated still further, either to the frozen lands of the north 
at the very limits of Novgorod's trade empire, where the Orthodox Church was less powerful, or to the emerging power of central Russian cities, none greater than Moscow. With them, the Skormoloki took their ancient songs, verses, tales and legends, although often adapted to a more plebeian audience. Stolid royal epics could hardly be expected to entertain either money-counting businessmen or the drunken denizens of a village tavern. Some settled down, others did not, some worked alone, others as part of a troop. Regardless, monasteries habitually banned them from setting foot on their lands. Property surveys conducted in the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries show their extent. The commercial centre of Tolopietz had seven Skomolochi of 2,400 inhabitants in 1540-41, while the weapons manufactories of Tula had five out of a total male population of 840 in 1588-89. Furthermore, these surveys show the social acceptability of the Skomolochi. The settled minstrels were legitimate taxpayers, valued no less than shoemakers, tanners and armourers. In some towns, the settled Skormolochi outnumbered bakers, butchers and carpenters. Some played double roles, bard by night, shopkeeper by day. They often formed mini-districts in towns and cities, such as Elinskaya Street in Nizhny Novgorod in 1621, where three Skormolochi did business. Of course, these established Skomoroki were but the icing on the cake, the lucky few. Many more worked the land or served as soldiers for their crust of bread, or wandered the country, performing for a handful of coins. Both the state and the church blamed them for brigandage and fraud in the countryside. A folk legend recorded in the 19th century had Skomoroki diverting villagers with their entertainments while collaborators discreetly robbed unattended homes and barns. Something of the kind of reward these itinerant Skomoroki were after is given in one of their preserved songs. Whoever is rich but miserly does not brew beer. To us young lads he gives neither food or drink. To him God will give a cat's breathing, a dog's gasping. To the poor but generous man, who brews beer and treats us young lads to it. God will grant fertility in the fields, abundance on the threshing floor, success in the kneading of bread, plenty on the table. Of his beer, the bumpkin drank his fill. He drank his fill, then lay down in the shed. About his mouth, enough crumbs to fill a cap and a half. Ironically, it was the Skormolochi's biggest fan who triggered the decline in their collective fortunes. Ivan the Terrible adored the Skormolochi, hiring several to his court and paying them much more than even some senior attendants in his bedchamber. However, when he finally put an end to the city of Novgorod's independence in 1580, conquering it and massacring its inhabitants, he shattered the great homeland of the Skormolochi. The lucky few he forcibly deported to join his court troops in Moscow. The rest either died in the slaughter 
all were reduced to begging. The increase in itinerant scormaraki, rightly or wrongly associated with crime and disorder, only added weight to the long-held arguments of a church that these bards were a deadly moral virus. The long period of civil war in the early 17th century, known as the Time of Troubles, can only have worsened the general position of the Skormoloki. Although the first Romanov Tsar was a fan, his son, Alexei Mikhailovich, was certainly not. Raised, educated and advised by religious zealots, Tsar Alexei ruled from 1645 to 1676, moved to ban the Skormoloki outright in 1648. Arguing that they distracted people from their Christian duties and caused poor church attendance with scandalous music and songs, Alexei demanded that all instruments connected with the Skormoloki be turned in and burnt. Other things banned in this puritanical offensive were boxing, swings, dice, chess and cards. The Skormoloki themselves, along with anyone found to be listening to them, were to be whipped on the first and second offences and exiled to the country's borders for the third and fourth offences. Although Alexei cannot have hoped to end the ancient tradition of minstrels in a day, his edict does ultimately seem to have had its desired effect. Certainly, it became much more difficult to be a settled, urban Skomorok, since the Tsar's writ carried much more weight in towns and cities. What is certain is that by the late 18th century, references to Skormoloki in the available sources entirely cease, although at least part of their roles might have been taken on by others. They may have lasted longer in the Urals and Siberia than in central Russia, since it may be presumed this is where those outlawed bards who could not adapt to Alexei's attack on fun finally fled. We should also note that the Skormoloki were not the only people driven east by the zeal of Tsar Alexei. Convinced that ritual purity was required to restore morality and godliness to the Russian lands, Alexei and his supporters in the church attempted a reform of orthodox rites, intending to restore them to the supposedly more pristine originals. Opponents of this reform, known to history as the Old Believers, were declared schismatics and subjected to persecution at the hands of church and state. They too found it necessary to flee to the unsupervised depths of the Russian Empire, to its endless forests, deep ravines and expanses of snow-covered wasteland. Then there was serfdom, the slave-like state of bondage in which a large proportion of the Russian people lived. Alexei's Law Code of 1648 made this an inescapable condition, which forced many to find a way out by simply running as far and as fast as their feet could carry them. Finally, war and economic depression played their roles, pushing still more peasants to the east. It is at this point we should resume the reconstructed biography of our hero, Kirshid Danilov. But first let's have a brief interlude. Let's listen to a minute or so of a modern recreation of Danilov's song, Kada Bula Maladsu, played on that most scholar of instruments, the Guzli. 
Когда была молодцу пора время великая, честь хвала молодецкая, Господи Бог и милывал, Государь царь жаловал, Отец и мать и молодца у себя во любви держал. А род и племя молодца не может и наглядеть и ся. Соседи и ближние почитают и жалуют. А друзья да товарищи на совет соезжаются. Советы, советы вас. Крепку думушку думати, прослужебу царскую, да прослужебу воинскую. And now back to the tale. Going by the historian Victor Biden's account, Kirsha Danilov was born circa 1703 in the forested parts of Nizhny Novgorod province, an area infamous for its old believer population. He seems to have been the last in a long line of Skolomoroki who, at some point in the previous century, left the Russian north for reasons unknown to come to Nizhny Novgorod. From them it is to be presumed he learned the music and verses of Russia's bardic tradition. Then, for an as yet undiscovered crime, he was banished from Nizhny Novgorod at the end of the 1720s, spending some time in jail in the Siberian capitals of Tobolsk and Tomsk before beginning a life sentence working at a factory in the distant southwestern Siberian region of the Altai. The factory, as it so happened, belonged to one Akintfi Demidov, the heir of Peter the Great's most successful arms manufacturer. While training as an apprentice blacksmith, Kirsha Danilov may have met with Akafini Demidov, perhaps taken with the Skomorok's exceptional skill and talent, Demidov smuggled the exile out of Siberia to his recently founded Urals Iron Factory of Nizhny Tagil in circa 1735. Danilov was to remain there until 1758, working both as a master blacksmith and Demidov's personal entertainer. A few words should be spent on the Demidovs and their empire of enterprises. An illiterate serf blacksmith and old believer, Nikita Demidov, the pater familias, came to the attention of Peter the Great for the quality of the arms he produced in his Tula factories. This came at a time when Peter was thigh deep in a protracted war with Sweden that was to last for more than two decades. Iron production for armaments was at a premium, especially since Sweden had been Russia's main source of this raw material before hostilities commenced. In thanks, Peter awarded Nikita a factory in Nevyansk, one of the first to be built on the Siberian side of the Urals. Partly through entrepreneurial acumen and partly through the massive benefits granted by Peter, Nikita paid no tax for instance, the factory became a standout success, providing extremely cheap iron 
to fuel the Russian war effort. Nikita became immensely rich as a result, earning around 100,000 rubles a year by 1725. His material riches were further garnered by social wants when Peter bestowed upon him and his children noble rank. Nikita's schismatic status as an old believer was simply ignored, a favour Nikita and his successors were to return, offering shelter at their factories for old believers fleeing persecution in other parts of the country. This was not altogether an altruistic act, however. One of the problems that bedeviled the development of Ural industry was a lack of manpower. In parts, the old believers, outlawed Skomaroki, desperate serfs, exiled criminals, and Swedish prisoners of war helped cover some of the need, but they were not enough. Already in 1702, Peter had granted Nikita Demidov the right to buy or request peasant serfs, essentially bound for life to the factories and labour there. By 1719, some 31,300 male factory serfs were present in the Urals. By 1763, their number had risen to 122,000. In human terms, these were people who had been bought and sold, often wrenched from their villages in agriculture to work as auxiliary workers in the developing plants of the Urals. Moved hundreds, if not thousands of kilometres, they, along with the more privileged skilled labourers like blacksmiths, worked 12-hour shifts for six days a week. Although supposedly sacrosanct, Sundays could also be working days due to the way shifts were timed. Their working environments were the hot, cramped forges where auxiliary work required the constant shoveling of raw material into the flame or the movement of goods, finished and unfinished, from one place to the next. Children as young as seven helped produce cooking utensils from the metal and gather ore. Alcohol consumption and production at the Demidov factories was banned into the 1750s. Harsh corporal punishment was administered by the factory management for the slightest infraction, usually by public whipping with a knout. The minimum wages were fixed at a rate set in the early 1720s, not moving to accommodate for inflation. And then there were the Demidovs themselves. Nikita, a rough-hewn former serf, had no time or belief in gentility when it came to managing the workforce. It remains a persistent rumour that the basement of the infamous Leaning Tower of the Nivyansk factory was used as a place to murder disobedient serfs. Another long-standing rumour, not substantiated by fact, was that the factory administration had a habit of shoving protesting workers alive into the furnaces. Nikita's eldest son, Akintfi Demidov, while the recipient of a European university education, had no reason to be milder, since in 1744 he was granted essentially dictatorial powers over his factories, answerable to Empress Elizabeth alone. And indeed the Demidovs ignored even imperial edicts with abandon, such as the one requiring them to report the discovery of silver and copper, 
One of the most telling instances in this regard was the 1750 standoff between the Nizhny Tagil factory administration and the armed squad dispatched by an orthodox archbishop to root out old believers. Here, the factory and its militia essentially faced down an army company to protect its employees from outside interference. It may be that our bard, Kirsha Danilov, and some of the characters mentioned in one of his songs played a part in this incident. However, to be somewhat even-handed with regard to material conditions at the factory, even the serfs enjoyed some benefits from their work. They were granted land and materials with which to build homes, and their food supply was buttressed by the factories. The land, if it was suitable, was used to farm, which meant the factories often ceased working at full pace during the summer when the harvest took place. Equally, their access to an alternative food supply meant these workers were less dependent on their wages or fluctuations in the market, compensation perhaps for the inflated prices they were expected to pay for goods which had to travel large distances from market towns. All of this gave rise to the distinctive Ural factory town, a peculiar amalgam of workshops, blast furnaces, administrative buildings, houses of varying size and quality, barracks, agricultural fields and markets, all staffed by a diverse population of skilled Russian and foreign specialists, ex-convicts, fugitive old believers and purchased serfs. That the Ural factories enjoyed prodigious success throughout much the first half of the 18th century, with factories rising in number from 4 in 1725 to 75 in 1760, and iron production increasing by 250% between the same years, was in no small part thanks to the incredible burden placed on this uprooted and disparate population. Equally burdened were the region's native Bashkirs and Tatars, driven forcibly from their lands by the Demidovs and the Russian state. This was the world in which Kirsha Danilov lived and worked, although he enjoyed something of a privileged position. First, he was qualified as an ironmaster, which at least guaranteed him a fairly high rate of pay. This somewhat elevated position is marked by the location of his house, quite near to the centre of the Nizhny Tagil factory settlement. Second, as the personal bard Akinfi Demidov, he was guaranteed some measure of personal protection. The few times Danilov is identified in the sources by Viktor Biden between his presumed dates of arrival and departure in 1735 and 1758. He appears to have received the protection of the Demidovs and their team of factory managers. So, for instance, as an exiled criminal and possibly an old believer who had left his assigned place of forced labour, the Demidovs seemed to either have made sure he was absent whenever the state conducted one of its sporadic inspections of the factory population, or to provide him with a spurious backstory. In 1740, he was most likely arrested for wandering around the Urals without a passport. Taken for interrogation to the regional capital of Yekaterinburg, his release was secured by means of an intervention from the Demidovs and their staff in the city. 
Ultimately, we can only presume what life was like for Kirshid Danilov during the two decades or so he lived in Nizhny Tagil. By 1758, he seems to have been married. Moreover, his patron, Akinfi Demidov, was dead, and the poisonous inheritance dispute between his two sons, Prokopi and Nikita, was coming to a close. As a result of the settlement, Kirsha Danilov found himself moved to the factory settlement of Nevyansk. It is here that he came into contact, and probably not for the first time, with the Haritonovs, a family of Moscow merchants who, while not as wildly successful as the Demidovs, had made a pretty penny selling iron to the state. These individuals had the money and the available know-how not only to hire a clerk to dot down Danilov's wide repertoire of songs, ditties and verses, but also to set them to modern European musical notation, a rare skill in the Urals at the time, given Russia's relatively recent transition away from their own ancient system of music notation. Finished in either late 1761 or early 1762, this original manuscript then lived its own life. Most notably, it may have been borrowed by Prokopi Demidov in 1779, who lent it to his future son-in-law, the Swedish clerk Mark Hosikov. Hosikov served as the clerk to Ivan Bietsky, who was in turn the personal secretary of Catherine the Great up until 1779. When the loaned manuscript was demanded back, Demidov probably had it copied by several scribes. The resulting copy was that used for the 1804 and 1818 published editions, which then disappeared for the best part of a century. Excitingly, perhaps something from this copy made its way to Empress Catherine herself. On the 15th of May 1786, an opera entitled The Novgorod Bogatir Boyoslavievich was performed at the royal court, with the emperor sending thanks to the organisers. Nothing similar to this opera had been published at the time. The only place where it occurs is in Danilov's manuscript. Perhaps, then, through a circuitous route, Danilov's words managed to reach the very heights of imperial power. As for the man himself, Biden suggests he died in 1776 in Nevyansk, aged 73. Six years prior, his only confirmed son, Ivan, had been forcibly dispatched with his family for settlement in Siberia. So, in 1776, it seems as though the enormous treasure of Kirsha Danilov's Skomolok skills vanished with him although perhaps not entirely. In the folklore craze that followed the publication of his works, both specialists and amateurs repeatedly met with peasants and townspeople capable of reciting, almost word for word, the songs that Dinilov had once sang and played on his Tana Boy. Of far greater importance, the books based on his manuscript immortalised his stories. They have not only influenced greats like the novelists Ivan Turgenev and Lev Tolstoy and the composer Olimsky Kosakov, but also generation after generation of schoolchildren. Of course, it is possible to quibble. To what extent 
was Kirsha Danilov the author of anything? Didn't he simply repeat what had been handed down by his ancestors? But such a question stands on false grounds. The very tradition of the Skomaraki was not just to recite, to recapitulate, to reel off. It was also to adapt, to adjust, to accommodate. This was what gave the Skomaraki their staying power, their ability to make their ancient songs relevant to vastly different audiences living in vastly different times. Although scholars still dispute just how much Kirsha Danilov changed and adapted his musical inheritance, there are some areas where there can be no doubt. Take, for instance, the very song that the German historian Müller requested from Prokopi Demidov to Nikita Romanovich was given the village of Priobrzenskaya. The story is a typical historical legend existing in about 80 versions. Here, Ivan the Terrible seeks to execute his son for treason, only for the son to be rescued by Ivan's brother-in-law, Nikita Romanovich. Once the Tsar has realised the errors of his ways, he offers Nikita Romanovich a reward. Other versions make mentions of money, slaves and other worldly goods, but Danilov's version differs. Here, Nikita Romanovich is offered the village of Plyobrzhenskaya, a place that in the 18th century became the headquarters of the Imperial Inquisition, a place of torture and torment. Danilov's point, absolutely understandable to 18th century audiences, was thus. No matter how generous the Tsar, Imperial gifts always come back to bite you in the end. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time. Mm -hmm.